Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Today's show is also brought to you by The Vault at Stock and Barrel in Egan, a collection of specialty and pre-owned firearms for collectors and enthusiasts. Learn more at StockandBarrel.com. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, September 10th, 2023. Welcome, every, welcome everybody to WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Dreesler, and I am here until 6 o'clock. Very excited to be with you. What an absolutely gorgeous weekend. Uh, as Jonathan Lowe said in the sports update prior to the beginning of this show, however, yes, there were a lot of long faces traipsing around downtown Minneapolis today between the Twins and the Vikings both losing. You know, they're on other ends of downtown, and I, and I think at several intersections I saw different groups of fans, you know, crossing, and you could, you could, you could tell, you know, they were from the different games and upset. But, hey, uh, everybody had a good time, and uh, it's early in the football season, and it uh, looks like the Twins are going to make the old playoffs. We are live and local. I got lots of great content here today. I'm very excited. We are going to talk with Timothy Lyons with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resource. We got uh, some really good pheasant reports coming in, not only from Minnesota, but from Iowa. It's all a little relative. I might get into that a little bit later. Uh, Tim is the Upland Game Research Scientist out of Medalia. He is going to share the upbeat pheasant report for the state of Minnesota with us. We are also going to talk with Tiffany Wolf. She is a researcher at the University of Minnesota. We're going to talk about moose, Minnesota moose. If you've been following that topic over the years, you know that our moose population has been declining. We hardly ever talk about northwest moose anymore, and that that was a huge population that crashed, what, about 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Uh, We've seen the moose population in the northeastern portion of Minnesota decline the past 10, 15 years. And we're going to talk with uh, Tiffany about maybe what's causing it. There's a number of factors. There's predation. There's... Uh, cars that hit these moose. There's liver flukes. But there's something called brain worm uh, that also is probably the single biggest factor, and we're going to talk to her about that. Uh, she is researching you know, what could be a key vector uh, in transmitting brain worm from deer to moose. It doesn't kill deer. It does kill moose. Uh, we'll talk to her about that a little bit. Uh, we have got the archery deer hunting season, hard to believe, kicking off uh, this Saturday already. Saturday, September 16th is the opening of uh, you know big game season here in Minnesota. We already got some elk hunting going on in northeast, northwestern Minnesota. A lot of folks don't even think know that we have moose uh, in Minnesota, but we do have a, a limited hunt up there. Uh, but deer hunting is going to get going. And this is the first year we're going to, you know, any archer, quote-unquote archer, <laughs> can use a crossbow. Uh, the legislature legalized that uh, this past session. And so... Anybody of any skill level, any age, sex, whatever, uh, if you want to go out now and use a crossbow, uh, you can do that during the archery season. I distinguished uh, some of those specific demographics because older folks could, I think if you were over 60, you could use a crossbow prior to this. And if you had like a note from your uh, your doctor, like I had shoulder surgery a few years ago, I probably could have convinced a doctor to give me a special you know, pass so that I could have hunted with a crossbow, but now anybody can do it. So that's uh, that's going to be a big deal, and we will see what that does to the uh, white-tailed deer harvest in the state of Minnesota if it if it increases it. I think it could. Some of the uh, DNR folks seem to think it it's going to probably move some of the harvest up a little earlier. 
a lot of people only take one deer a year if they took it with a bow. Um, and maybe they hunted longer. You know, they didn't get it with a with a with a long bow, a vertical bow is the term till October, November, maybe even late season in December. Maybe some of those folks are gonna are gonna score a deer a little bit earlier now if they're using a crossbow. We shall see. Uh, I got out this past Friday. Uh, I warned people last week that I might talk about wild ricing a little bit. I did get out on Friday. Uh, yeah, north of Lake Malak, uh, kind of that Aitken area is where I was. Uh, and I went out with a gentleman who knows a lot about wild racing. And, I mean, this guy, I mean, if there's the closest thing to a slam dunk in wild race, going out with this gentleman is it. Uh, we got to our first spot. He had, he had three locations. We got to our first spot. He said he knew there was a lot of race there. Uh, and he said, Rob, be prepared. This could be the best day of racing in either of our lives. I'm like, wow, you know, here we go. Well, we, we paddle out, and you can't make it up, folks. I wasn't out. We, we weren't out there for more than five minutes, and we realized it was a total bust. Uh, I was the guy pushing the canoe, the, the guy pulling. Uh, my partner was using the flails to try to hit rice into the uh, canoe. And there was no rice on the stocks. It was all gone. And he thinks what happened. He knew there had been heavy rain and even a hailstorm in that area. He didn't think it had been bad enough to wipe out the rice on this this massive rice bed, but it was. And I'm relatively inexperienced. I've been on maybe six, seven times my entire life. And even with my relatively untrained eye, I was like, this ain't the spot. And so we were immediately off the lake, and we tried uh, option B. So we went out there, and it was a little better. Uh, it was it was a tough area to access. Uh, that's a story in itself. A lot of mosquitoes, by the way, as we were uh, as we were launching. But we got out there, and we got maybe twenty five pounds of rice in about ninety minutes. There's limited hours. You can go. You can start racing at nine. You have to be off the water by three. So I mean, we we didn't get to our second spot till you know, and on the water racing probably till about yeah a little before ten thirty. And like I say, it was before noon, and, and I was like, you know, I'm not feeling it. We could stick it out here and maybe double or triple what we've got, but, you know, what's option C? And uh, he said, well, you know, we know this is bad. Let's let's try the other spot. So we went to option C, which was very good. Uh, the water was low, which is bad, right, if you're the guy in the back pulling around the wetland because it's really hard to push through the rice. But there was a ton of rice. And we did about 55 pounds in 90 minutes. Again, you know, with the, the travel, the launch, it was a little bit of a drive. We weren't out there until a little before 1.30. But in that 90-plus minutes, we did very well. Uh, and so, you know, they, they, on the day, we had about 80, 85 pounds. You figure you whittle it down. Uh, the processed rice, it's, we'll be in the 40, 42-pound range for finished rice. We split it. I should be you know, low 20-pound plus on the day, which isn't bad. That's that's enough to get me through the year. A license is 25 bucks. I told my partner, you know, if you see uh, another opportunity and, and you're looking for someone to go out with, uh, please let me know. So it's possible I will even try to get out one more time this year, see if we can score one of those big two, 300-pound days that I've always heard about with guys who go wild racing, but I've never actually been in a canoe that's taken that much rice. I've, uh, I think last year we had about a 150-pound day, which was great. That's a lot of rice. I don't mean to be greedy. Uh, but it's it's really gratifying. It's really satisfying when you're out there busting your your butt, and you actually uh, you score a big day with a lot of rice. Why don't we get into break? We are going to talk with Timothy Lyons here in a few minutes. We're going to talk about an upbeat ring-necked pheasant hunting report for the fine state of Minnesota. So don't go away. More WCCO out of doors after these messages. 
Everybody, welcome back to WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Dreesline here on News Talk 830. We are here until the top of the hour. Then stay tuned, 60 minutes, and Gerilyn Steele with Steel Talking gets going at 7 p.m. So a full evening of fine content here on WCCO. I want to jump in immediately with my next guest, Tim Lyons, Timothy Lyons. He's the Upland Game Research Scientist for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources out of Medalia. I appreciate him carving out a little time to chat with us on a Sunday night, but we've got some pretty good news to talk about, don't we, Tim? Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, You were on with us once before, and I appreciate you joining us now. We got the 2023 pheasant survey, ringneck pheasant survey here in Minnesota. We got that data back. The DNR released it, I think, on Tuesday. Uh, and uh, it's good news, isn't it? Uh, anytime you're talking about potential triple-digit increases in some areas, I, I've been an outdoor writer a long time, Timothy. I don't know that I've ever seen that in a uh, in a subhead on a, on a one of our news stories before. Yeah, it's, it is really good news. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> I would just caution, you know, all of our surveys, there's some slop in those numbers. Um, but from talking to the area managers in those, in the, those you know, that part of the state, this is their, they've even said that this is probably one of the better years that they can remember. In recent, certainly in recent memory. So, how does the DNR uh, yeah. count? Oh, I'm sorry, Timothy. The DNR counts pheasants by going out on these roadside surveys, right? We, I think I talked about that, and that that occurs in early August, yeah. and that's literally volunteers and area managers going out and driving some of these routes that have been driven for years and listening for rooster pheasants. Is that right? Yep, we have 172 routes across the entire uh, the area that we serve at the farmland region. About 150 of those are in what we would consider the pheasant range. Um, and yeah, uh, they drive about 25 mile route, anywhere from two to four routes per county. And they are looking for pheasants, partridge, deer, cranes, uh, doves, and rabbits. And uh, let's talk about the big one, ringneck pheasants, uh, in the kind of what I consider really the core area of, of pheasant hunting, the you know southwest, eh, what would you say, southwest quarter of the state. Uh, numbers looking pretty good. Yeah, they were up uh, 101% over last year. So at least on the index, we doubled them. Um, like I said, there's always some flop in those numbers, but it certainly is good numbers, good, uh, a good good sign. Is that we're a function? The- Go ahead. Now, I was going to say, is that a function of it being really bad last year and, and kind of the stars aligning? So it was, you know, the, maybe an above average year this year that made it look really good? Or is this, is, this is a legitimate, very positive news? Oh, it's legitimate. There's a definite increase for sure. Um, you know, last year, one of the comments I heard was that the index wasn't as telling for what, you know, area staff, again, thought might, might be the true, you know, the how actually was doing the index maybe was underestimating that. That's maybe some other reason why it was so high. But, no, I think the, the drier weather this year for sure, um, you know, around this part of the country, um, drier weather generally is good for our game birds. Um you know, they don't, the chicks can't survive very well in wet weather or cold weather at all. So having the warmer and drier um, conditions, particularly during the brood rearing season. So anywhere from like the start of June through July and August, um, that's, you know, makes it much more likely we're going to see a lot more chicks in any given year. Yeah, drought is bad for waterfowl, obviously. And I've spent, yeah. I've spent a fair amount of time the past several weeks talking about, you know, duck numbers not being in very good shape. Uh, across the region. Uh, but, yeah, it's funny how the opposite is mostly true for pheasant, right? I mean, now we're we're in, in the Twin Cities here, man. 
it is dry. Uh, it, it's really, I mean, at, at some point it gets even too dry for pheasants, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think maybe that's what we're seeing. You know, the increases we saw are along that western, you said the western quarter, you know, up to Big Stone County, Chippewa County, um, and all the way down to the state line with Iowa. Um, but, yeah, in that eastern, you know, the you know, quarter of the state, so the southeast, you know, south, the east metro area, that's where we did see some declines. And, you know, I don't think the winter severity, that's certainly a good roll. Um, but, you know, looking at different maps and weather conditions, you know, the big thing that sort of jumps out at me is that, it is that sort of like eastern portion of the state that got hit hardest with drought, not just now, but again throughout the entire summer. So that may have something to do with it. You know, the heat and the drought, that's stress. Maybe the hens didn't try as hard to, you know, produce multiple nesting attempts if they failed. That's always a big, a big source of our recruitment in any given year, not just the first hatches, but the fact that we can have hens try a second time, a third time, sometimes even a fourth nesting attempt. Yeah, you know, southeast Minnesota looks looks bad on the map, and I talked. I was talking with Tim Spielman at Outdoor News a little bit about that. I, I don't get too worked up about that. I mean, let's face it, that is not hardcore pheasant country. Uh, I, you know, that's that's where I spend a lot of time uh, turkey hunting, deer hunting. All the years I've trips yeah. around my dad's place down in you know the Winona Houston County line, I don't know that I've ever heard a rooster or pheasant cackle in the distance, Tim. Uh, I've, 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 I've jumped more huns. I've seen more huns down yeah. there, uh, even bobway quail, than I think I have seen pheasants. Now, again, that's getting into extreme southeast Minnesota. But, uh, sure. you know, it's, 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 an, it's, it's an aging forest part of the state, right? I mean, it's, it's just not yeah, pheasant country not, anymore. No, it's definitely not the core area. They're still there in, you know, small pockets. But definitely not the, you know, the core area. You know, a typical index value of good year last year for down there was 23 24 pheasants per 100 miles of road surveyed, you know, that's the lowest anywhere really in the state other than just, the, you know, the east central part of the state. So that's, you know, roughly, if I can pull up the map here, now that's sort of roughly um, towards Mille Lacs, Asante, Chisago, Washington County. So that's that east central. So that's the only other area of the state that's got that low numbers of pheasant, you know, for pheasants. Um so yeah, it's not definitely not the core range. It's, I don't think it's anything to be too worked up about. Um, but you did mention partridge, and that's another one that's up a lot this year. Gray partridge numbers are are also up. Hungarian partridge they're uh, they're a release species. They're not native here, uh, but uh, do they also benefit from kind of the the drier conditions? Yeah, that's a, that's our thing, and you know, um, yeah, that's that's generally what it is. You know, we see them, you know, more plentiful in places maybe folks that are that go out west to hunt they'll they'll see them more in you know, short grass or mixed grass prairie areas um they do like you know some of the some of the, the loss and the declines we've had in minnesota over the years has been due to you know loss of hay fields and things but definitely a precipitation problem as well you know we have more rain um so anytime we do have dry and i, I think probably successive dry years like we have had um that's that benefits them certainly I've had some good Hungarian partridge hunting out west, like Missouri Breaks country of uh, of Montana. Yeah, and even even farther west in Montana, uh, they're a lot of fun to hunt. The uh, Minnesota the Minnesota uh, ringneck pheasant hunting season begins on Saturday, October fourteenth. Pretty good outlook here. We're chatting with Tim Lyons. He is with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. He's the Upland Game Research Scientist out of Medalia. Uh, you know, I always have to bring it back. I mean, we got a good report probably based mostly on weather. Uh, that's despite habitat conditions not being great out there, right? I mean, we, we lost more CRP than we gained in the past year. Yeah, that's right. We saw probably about, oh, 
right now in our in the pheasant range at least we have about 670,000 acres of CRP um, and you know in a previous year we had pull it up here you know just last year we had uh, 687 680 690,000 acres of CRP so we lost about 18,000 acres um, you know we made some of that up with either acres at the DNR you know, purchase areas that the Fish and Wildlife Service purchased. Um, also, a lot of our federal and state um, easements, but we only you know, pulled back about 9,000 acres of that. So it's not as huge of a loss, but it's still a loss. And yeah, um, you know, folks look at the report. You can look back through time on the, some of the graphs. And, you know, we're kind of sitting at a good, we're at a stable level in terms of our pheasant numbers. We keep bouncing around maybe a, a constant average. Um, and, you know, don't see, we're not going to see numbers go up like we saw maybe in the early 2000s um you know back then there was a lot more crp on the ground and that's you know that's kind of what's going to drive a, a recovery like that is we just need more habitat yeah i mean crp 15 years ago was probably well north of seven figures i gotta think i, I won't ask you to dig that up right now <laughs> uh, but uh like i say overall positive outlook for pheasant hunting uh, i thank you for all you do tim uh, we're we're uh I, you know, I haven't seen a positive report like this in a while, and it and it's good when, like I say, the the other game bird species I get pretty worked up about is waterfowl, and things aren't so good there. So, uh, thanks for all you're doing, and uh, like I say, good reports really across most of the region, I think too. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I know in some of the press release and the report we talk about a decline maybe in the south central region of the state, um, but the reality is there that, that's still at or just slightly above the statewide average index so it's a decline because last year was better not that this year is bad you know that's another way to think about some of this too gotcha well tim thanks for spending a segment with us uh, good luck with your uh, fall activities and uh, we'll see you on october 14th take care thanks right. thank you timothy lyons he's with the minnesota department of natural resources upland game research scientist out of medalia with an upbeat report for ringneck pheasants in minnesota one of the most popular game birds you're going to have in the region uh we are going to get in a break when we return i'm going to talk with tiffany wolf she is a researcher at the university of minnesota who's done some really in-depth studies on brainworm and how it's affecting our minnesota moose population really some good insightful information here that uh, i hope maybe will alter the trajectory of moose management in the state, and maybe we'll have more of them. Maybe someday we'll even have a hunting season again. Let's get into break. More WCCO Outdoors after these messages. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors. News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline is joining you for another segment on this Sunday, September 10th, already getting into the middle portion of September. A lot of hunting seasons are underway, and this coming Saturday, a number of additional seasons kick off. Probably the biggest one would be the archery deer hunting season, which this year also will include crossbows. Anybody who wants to use a crossbow, any person of any age, statewide, can use a crossbow now during that general archery hunting season. But I want to talk about another big member of the deer family right now, the moose, an iconic species, the Minnesota moose. Joining me now is Tiffany Wolf, an assistant professor at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Minnesota. Our friend Tori McCormick had a great story in last week's edition of Outdoor News about a study that Tiffany and some of her colleagues uh, recently published in the Journal of Wildlife Diseases. It involves a really important species, a keystone species, we like to say here in Minnesota, the moose. 
Tiffany joins us now. Tiffany, uh, good to meet you. And uh, wow, what boosted your interest in researching moose here in, uh, in North Country? Uh, good to meet you too, Rob, and thanks for having me. Um, well, my background is I'm a wildlife veterinarian, and I like to study disease. Um, I got involved in studying our moose population and its decline oh, back in 2008, uh, and then joined Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa in their efforts to understand the population decline here in Minnesota. And so that really kicked things off for me. And, and early on in some of that work, we were seeing a lot of adult moose mortality associated with a parasite uh, that everyone likes to refer to as brain worm. And that's really what set, got the start of this particular research project. So we've been talking about brainworm and moose for a long time. I, I remember taking a timber forestry class at the University of Wisconsin back in like 1988 or 89 and talking about how moose and deer just don't necessarily get along because deer can transmit this brainworm to moose. So this isn't new. This is something wildlife folks have known about for many decades or beyond, correct? That's true. Um, for as long as deer and moose have shared habitat, um, mm -hmm. we have recognized that uh, associated with this is the transmission of some diseases. And like you said, brainworm is one of those. It doesn't affect deer or their populations, uh, but it does affect moose. It can cause a neurological disease in moose that can uh, lead to mortality. Now, we've had moose populations declining again, for decades. I mean, we had a ton of moose in northwestern Minnesota. No one even talks about those anymore. They've been gone for like 30 years. We've seen this northeast population decline. A number of factors involved. Everyone's trying to understand. It seems like it's stabilized a bit around what this 3,700 number, but there's, there's liver flukes, there's brain worm, there's predation, there's car collisions. There's a lot of things that contribute to moose mortality, but it does seem like we always come back to this brain worm thing. There seems to be kind of, what would you call it, an intermediate host, an intermediate vector that your research has really focused in on concerning the link between deer and moose and brainworm? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and I do want to say the reason we kind of honed in on brainworm in particular is because brainworm... The illness associated with brainworm can can contribute to other forms of mortality. So a moose that is suffering illness from brainworm um, is going to be more vulnerable to predation by wolves. Sure. They're also going to be more likely to hit, be hit by cars or trains yeah, because they're just sense. using the landscape very differently. Um, and so because of that, um, we really decided to hone in on, on brainworm and in thinking about the life cycle of this parasite, um, we know that it has two primary hosts to complete that life cycle, white-tailed deer and gastropods or snails and slugs. Over time, a lot of work has gone into trying to understand how that parasite proceeds through its life cycle. And along the way, we can observe that life cycle directly. For example, we can collect fecal pellets from deer that are infected with brainworm, and we can identify larvae that they're shedding in those fecal pellets. We can collect snails and slugs on the landscape, and we can look for those larvae. And we know that we can feed moose some of those infected snails and slugs, and they'll get sick from the disease caused by brainworm. Is it literally like a little worm or is it like a nematode kind of thing? And 
Yeah. And the, the moose eat these slugs or snails, which carry this, this brainworm, and, and that's how they, it gets into their system? Yeah, that that's always been the assumption. Um, and it's been it's been demonstrated in the lab experimentally that if you feed these infected gastropods to moose, then they'll get the disease. So that was demonstrated in the lab, but we've never observed that in nature. And so scientists have always worked under the assumption that that moose are consuming these gastropods inadvertently as they're foraging as they would normally for scientists to understand what species of snails and slugs are infected or can become infected with this gastropod, it requires screening thousands to tens of thousands of these gastropods to find a few that are infected. And so we decided to take a different approach. We decided to both test this question, are moose consuming gastropods on the landscape as they're foraging normally? And if they are, can we determine what species of gastropods they're consuming? And maybe that can help us take a more targeted approach to looking more closely at these species as an important host for, for a brainworm. And, and the way you did this was by uh, finding their, uh, their fecal piles, correct? You, you went out with, uh, with, a, with a specially trained dog to find these and, and took some samples, right? That's right. Very <laughs> glamorous work that we do here uh, at the university. <laughs> um, it required a lot of time in the woods. Um, we did have moose that were collared, and so we knew kind of knew where their bed sites were, um, and that really helped us um, to get out and find uh, fresh pellets from moose. Um, but we did also enlist the help of conservation dogs that are trained to sniff out moose and deer pellets that are on the landscape that would help really make our, our time in the field much more efficient. We're chatting with Tiffany Wolf, an assistant professor at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Minnesota. She's involved with some important research trying to understand what's killing our moose, and she's honed in on brainworm. You have some conclusions, Tiffany, that indeed brainworm is, is a major cause of moose mortality, and these gastropods are, are an important link in transmitting it to these uh, to these giant deer. Yeah, well, we do know from other studies that brainworm is an important cause of adult moose mortality, um, and that comes from a decade-long study of collaring moose and, and looking at uh, examining them following mortality, determining what caused their death. And in, in this study where we were collecting moose pellets and trying to determine if they were uh, consuming gastropods, this is one of several studies where we were trying to understand the role of these gastropod hosts in transmission. And I would say that this is a first step. Um, it's a proof of concept in that mm -hmm. we can leverage new technology, newer technologies um, and newer testing to collect and identify um, the consumption of, of snails and, and what species or what genera that moose uh, are consuming. Practically speaking, you know, could this help moose eventually? If we found out that indeed, if you can interrupt this intermediate vector, would that help moose? If there was a way to, you know, control the snails. And, and I think of North Dakota, a lot of people have said, well, the moose in North Dakota are doing great. And I've, we did a story on this in Outdoor News probably 10 years ago about uh, about these snails perhaps being a vector involved in this. And, and there was some 
conjecture that maybe there aren't as many of these snails and gastropods out in a drier environment in places like North Dakota, so they're not suffering from brainworm as much. Is that is that too big of a leap, or is that uh, does that seem logical to you? No, I mean that line of thinking is certainly what contributed to contributed to launching this kind of a study. We work very closely with population managers and forest managers, and and they work closely together, um, particularly in Grand Portage, as they're thinking about how to manage habitat better to benefit moose. And some of the questions that have emerged from that, those kinds of efforts are, are there certain ways that we should be treating and managing the forest that would alter the gastropod community such that we can reduce transmission of, of brain worm? And so, this, this study was done in parallel with other studies where we were looking at those kinds of questions. Um, how do the gastropod communities respond to different kinds of forest treatments? And, and, but really combined, these kinds of studies are really trying to do just what you're, you're asking about, which is, are there new other tools, the disposable of our managers that can be utilized to better support our moose population? Exactly. Well, Tiffany, thanks for all you're doing to help take care of, you know, an iconic Minnesota creature. I mean, anyone who's been to the Boundary Waters, it's a thrill. Or anyone who's ever been to northern Minnesota, they, they love to see a moose. Uh, they're huge. They're charismatic megafauna, right? And they're, they're right here in Minnesota. There's not a lot of states that have moose, and one of them is uh, Minnesota. So thanks for all you're doing, as well as the Grand Portage Band. We'll keep uh, readers and listeners up to date on your research. And uh, how, how much longer is the research going to be going on, Tiffany? Well, um, this study is is wrapping up, but um, there's certainly more uh, data that we have in the pipeline to explore this question related to p- brainworm in different ways. Thanks for all your, your hard work on it. Hope we can keep it going. Uh, thank all you, right. and, and have a good week ahead. Thanks, you too. Yeah, have a great fall. That was Tiffany Wolf from the University of Minnesota's College of Veterinary Medicine talking a little bit about some moose research. Let's get in a break. More of the broadcast after these messages. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Final segment of this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesslein, Managing Editor-Publisher of the Outdoor News Publications. Check us out at OutdoorNews.com. I'm here for uh, another five, six, seven minutes. Then uh, stay tuned for 60 minutes at the top of the hour. Then Jerry Lynn Steele will be in from 7 p.m. onward. So good content coming at you all evening on WCCO. Uh, what it's, uh, it's on my mind here as we wrap things up. I guess we probably should point out that uh, we looks like we got a new state record coho salmon that was caught on Lake Superior. I don't the exact measurements. I apologize for not having written that down. So it's over ten pounds. Uh, and earlier this year on this very broadcast, we talked about how there's been this big hatch spawn, as they say, of lake herring slash ciscos slash tulabies. They're the little forage fish native to the Great Lakes uh, that. Uh, that are that had a, had a really pulled off a really big spawn last year. So apparently Lake Superior is just full of them. Someone, by the way, pointed it suggested that you know is Lake Superior warming up? Is it becoming more fertile? Is it a better body of water for some of this forage? Does that bode well for salmon fishing? I'll, I won't go too deep into that. But bottom line, there's a ton of these little cheeseburger with fins swimming around Lake Superior this summer, 
And go figure. I, I, told, I You heard it here first. You heard it on WCC Outdoors that there's all this forage out there. And by golly, what happened? A 53-year-old state record coho salmon record fell. It broke here over a Labor Day weekend. And from what I'm hearing... The record may have been broken multiple times that weekend. Like someone may have broken it on Saturday, and another guy broke it like on Monday, kind of thing. Uh, because the coho salmon, they, they kind of move around the lake. People who know more about cold water fisheries than me could explain it, but they move around the lake. By the way, coho salmon as well as chinooks are not native to the lake. They were stocked there when the lake trout population uh, crashed. Uh, what in the mid twentieth century as a result of the uh, the sea lamprey invasion? Another whole story, uh, but. Um, they're swimming around the lake, and they provided a good little fishery, but now they got all this forage, so they're growing to these huge sizes. Uh, and and a stay record was caught there in that Duluth area, so congratulations to that gentleman. Uh, and, by the way, uh, sil- cohos, also called silver salmon, have a reputation as the best eating of all the salmon species. If you ever see, you know, I, I, even if you go to Costco, go to wherever, and you, you see fish, and you see wild coho slash silver salmon, some of the best eating of, of all the salmon that uh, that you're going to find. Uh, but that brings up actually another little point. Why do all the salmon species have two names? Cohos are called silvers. Chinooks, which also swim in the Great Lakes, also a, a West Slope Pacific Run salmon that were stocked in the Great Lakes. They're they're also called king salmon, Chinook and king salmon. Uh, we got pink salmon, also I believe a Pacific salmon. They don't get as big. Their nickname is is the humpback because they the males get this distinctive humpback on them. Uh, again, they don't grow as big. We don't have sockeye salmon. They got those in Alaska. Those are the ones that they can up there. I believe they're called also called the reds. And is there a drum salmon that I think the nickname is the dog salmon? Something like that. Uh, I, I may not uh, have all those perfect. Then there's Atlantic salmon, which look more like brown trout. We've got a few of those in some of the lower Great Lakes. I, yeah, there's a few of those in Lake Superior too. I believe. But congratulations, 53-year-old state record uh, for coho salmon falls over Memorial over I'm sorry, over Labor Day weekend 2023. Uh, speaking of fishing, the Minnesota DNR late in the week issued a bunch of press releases. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, fishing regulations around the state. The agency is seeking some comments on what does it say? Reduce crappie and sunfish daily limits for Maple Lake uh, in Wright County. They're looking for comments also on the same species for Clearwater Lake and connected Augusta, Caroline, Grass, and Otter Lakes. Uh, Those are in Wright and Stearns County. Uh, Then there's a northern pike fishing regulation change on Pearl Lake in Stearns County. And uh, then some uh, proposed experimental regs for Lake Winnie, Balsam, Haskell, and Scrapper Lakes. Uh, These are all up in Itasca County. So, uh, yeah, that's something the DNR pitches about this time of year. We will have all those press releases in the forthcoming edition of Outdoor News. might already be at OutdoorNews.com, or you can go to MNDNR.gov, and you can read some of these releases I just mentioned. But if any of those lakes, if you, you know, a little bell went off in your head, like, hey, I fish there, then you should uh, perhaps uh, check that out and chime in. Make your voice heard. Democracy affects natural resources issues uh, as well as uh, all sorts of other political issues. We were talking pheasants. It's looking like a real good outlook. We got a bunch of dates to remember that, like I said at the start of the show, we got the archery deer hunting season starts on September 16th. That is also the date that grouse and squirrel and bunny rabbit season starts. Uh, so this this Saturday, traditionally one of the biggest opener hunting openers of the year, 
a small game and the archery deer season. The pheasant season, now that, that's a little later. That's almost a month later here in Minnesota. That's on October 14th. Uh, we also had a good report, by the way, down in Iowa. Now, that season doesn't start till October 28th. A lot of Minnesotans, particularly in the southern portion of the state, uh, have gone to Iowa over the years to hunt pheasants down there. Uh, the uh, Iowa DNR predicting a harvest in the neighborhood of 400,000, which you know, ain't bad. And, and they're saying it's like the best outlook in eight, nine years down there, which goes to show how bad it's really been in Iowa. They've lost, we were talking with about Conservation Reserve Program, Grassland Acres, with Tim Lyon a little bit uh, earlier in the show here in Minnesota. They've lost even more uh, down in Iowa, and so it hasn't been real good. So, uh, you know, they're talking a 400,000 harvest, and they're, they're kind of you know, raving about it. Uh, you don't have to go that far back, and, you know, they had million million bird harvests in Iowa. Uh, so we got the 14th in Minnesota, the 28th in Iowa. In between, on October 21st, you got that uh, South Dakota uh, opener, the traditional opener, by the way, because a week earlier they allow residents to go out, and I think like three weeks earlier uh, they let uh, they let the youth go out. You got to have the, the early youth season, of course. So bottom line, a lot of openers coming up. Pretty good outlook. We don't know about South Dakota because they don't do a pheasant survey out there anymore, but uh, usually pretty good in South Dakota too. I'm out of time. Thanks to all the guests. Thanks to all the listeners who put up with me for the past hour. Everybody have a great week out of doors. Rob Driesline signing off for WCCO Outdoors.